Hello, and welcome to the Should I Go See a Podcast, where every other Friday we take a deeper dive into the one-sentence reviews on shouldigoseeit.com. This week we'll be discussing John Wick Chapter 4 and Air. I'm your host, Bill George. With me, as always, AJ Rebecca and super producer, Craig Stanton. Hello. What's going on, Bill? Gentlemen, how are you? Bill, I'm doing great. It's the best weekend of the entire year. This is, yeah, this is your favorite time of the year. I know yeah, that. For, for those who don't know, it is Master's Weekend. Bur- uh, birds piped in? Good. I'm trying to do wind rustling through the, through the leaves noises over here. Through the leaves at Augusta. Picture this. It's Sunday. You take a little nap midday. You wake up. The final group gets teed off. Jim Nance's voice. But my best part, the best part of the Masters, and this is like a weird thing because I watch, I, f- I think, f- too much golf, uh-huh. is when they like send it down to the guy on the course. They're like, all right, uh, we got Smiley on hole 17. And like <laughs> Smiley's there three inches from like Scotty Scheffler off the green. There's a guy with like an 18-foot boom mic, and he's like, <laughs> yep. uh, Scotty uh, sent it over the green. There's actually a waste collection area down below here, and he's going to have a really hard shot to get this up onto the green. And I'm just like, oh. Keep talking. <laughs> Which is a far cry from like Lisa Saunders or whatever on an NFL so- sideline. Like, I'm here with Bill's head coach, Sean McDermott. And as he ran into the tunnel, he said they needed to make more adjustments on defense. Back to you, Jeff. <laughs> um, it, is, did, it is truly a tradition unlike any other. Did Tony Saragusa die? Is he dead? Tony Saragusa, I Goose, believe, is no longer uh, with us. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna make a Tony Saragusa joke, but I had a feeling deep down that he that he died. Good pivot, Uh, Bill. How are you? I'm great, AJ. I'm great. Convincing. (laughs) Not a lot to report, to be honest with you. I mean, I don't really have a life, so. All right, cool. So, uh, what what have you been watching? I've been watching a lot of movies. That's what it's been up to. Um, Love that. I have revisited a couple uh, uh, movies that I wanted to talk about because it's the first time I've seen them in a while. Uh, including Royal Tenenbaums. So Wes Anderson's newest to come movie, Asteroid City, I think it was called, is coming out. So with that announcement, I decided, you know what? I had an afternoon free. I was on the couch. I'm like, I'm going to revisit a Wes Anderson classic. And I don't think I've seen Royal Tenenbaums, honestly, since it came out. Yeah. So it was like 20, a, 20 years? 20 years ago, probably. Yeah. Wow. So I uh, rewatched it with fresh eyes. And... Uh, it was pretty great. I mean, the first hour, honestly, was like magic with, you know, Alec Baldwin narrating. Uh, Hackman's great. Gwyneth Paltrow, one of her best roles. Like, just really, really fun. It started to fall off a little bit towards the end. I feel like the last, you know, 45 minutes dragged a little bit. But it was definitely, it's still definitely high tier Wes Anderson. And it's kind of where he honed the signature style that he has. Uh, that kind of went after all, you know, all the movies after that had that style kind of more and more locked in. But it still has some of the rough around the edges of his earlier movies like Bottle Rocket. So it's kind of like an in-between transition movie. It's kind of interesting to watch now in retrospect of, you know, his entire career. Um, it's very good. You, it's very good. Do you, do you think you subconsciously watched it because of the Gwyneth Paltrow trial on TV? There was there was some of that because I had just read up on Were that. Were you wearing uh, ski yeah. goggles? I had no idea anything about this trial, and then I saw some explainer. Dude, article, this trial like, check is it out. fucking well. It's over now, but it's wild. And the and the things that they were saying that like the what not only what happened, but the gentleman who got injured, 
you know, he was talking about like the damages that he wanted and the reason like his life is different. And he's like, oh, I couldn't go to like wine classes and cheese pairing seminars and shit. I'm like, these people live a completely <laughs> different yeah, life and they than ask, we do. They ask Gwen Paltrow like what it, well, how it affected her or what she, what, what cost it, it put on her. And she was like, well, I lost an afternoon of skiing. <laughs> that was it. Uh, so great. So yeah, so that was definitely subconscious part of why I watched it. Uh, and then I also rewatched uh, The Raid Redemption, which I've said on this show many times, it's the best action movie of the last 15 years. The and, Raid Redemption? And it holds up still to this day. Uh, it's from 2012. Indonesian movie, I believe. It's basically, you know, John Wick, two years before John Wick. Like, that style of fast-paced, but long cuts so you can actually see what's happening. Hand-to-hand action mixed in with some gunplay. Uh, like, Keanu Reeves obviously Americanized it and made it a phenomenon, but the raid got there first in terms of the style. It's a tight 90 minutes. Every fight is great. Uh, they don't just, like, throw extra henchmen in to make the fights longer for no reason. Like, ever, there's no wasted minute in that in that movie. Um, it's still my one of my favorite action movies of all time. Uh, so I've revisited that after, it's been a few years. And I cannot recommend it enough because it's one that I think a lot of people missed. It is subtitled, but uh, The Raid Redemption, it's a must-watch. The Raid 2 is also very good, but The Raid 2 is like a three-hour epic that they kind of made in lieu of the success of The Raid Redemption. Oh. And it's also good, but Redemption's sure. the best. Uh, I know you watched a couple things, or at least one. Yeah, I watched the Boston Strangler film on Hulu. Um, yeah, you sound a little down on that. Nah, not for me. Pass. Should I go see it? No, you don't have to go see it. I'm rattled by this. Bill was very excited about this last week. I was high on it. Uh, Bill was sweating this film. Here's the thing. Performances, great. I'm not going to knock them. Uh, Keira Knightley, Kerkoon, fucking dynamite gems. My problem is it was a, A, Fincher ripoff, and B, it was this rinse and repeat thing of at home in the in like the bullpen of the news room and then on a crime scene. And all it was is it switched back and forth between those three things. I think it would have been a much interesting like play or short where it's like all three settings become one to your point, obsessive thing where like she's at home. She's only thinking about the newsroom. And when she's in the newsroom, she's only thinking about the crime scene. And I think it'd been cool to like kind of do like a little play on that, but um, for two, almost two hours to just do rinse and repeat continuously, it was just I couldn't do it. I see. I thought I understand where you're coming from. There are a lot of parallel scenes throughout, but I didn't know any of the true story, and so I was more wrapped up in the details of what was happening. And I, I found it interesting, kind of following that investigation, uh, even if it did hit on a lot of the same notes over and over again, but that's, I mean, so did the killer did the same thing the same way. So I found it interesting. I assume, I assume most or some of these people are still alive today. Maybe. Sure. Like the, the characters, yeah. like the real life people, I would have much rather seen a, an hour and 15 minute doc from like the point of view of those people that actually cracked the case and figured it out. And like the things that they went through, I wouldn't, ar- I won't argue that. I agree. There are a lot of, uh, movies, dra- dramatizations of real life stories that I do think would uh, would be more interesting as a well made doc. So I wouldn't argue that. 
for sure. But I, I still enjoyed it. I liked it. There's one other piece, one other quick piece of news, AJ. New, oh, uh, quick news before new story. I don't know if I'll allow it. Craig? Uh, we'll see where this goes. We'll see where this goes. Okay. Well, okay, sure. Go. We have to talk about it. Craig, you're, Craig, you're supposed to say, I'll allow it, but watch yourself, counselor. Um, Heat 2, which we talked about. Uh, first of all, Heat, Michael Mann's seminal classic Heat, got a sequel in book form. And it now looks as if they are officially going to adapt Heat 2 into a film. And But the interesting part of this, that's not necessarily news because that was kind of figured that would happen. The interesting story is it looks like they have Adam Driver in mind to play a young Neil McCauley, who is Robert De Niro's character. And I'm curious, your thoughts on Adam Driver as a young De Niro? Go. I have no thoughts because I've never seen the film. So I don't know how De Niro De Niro is in Michael Mann's seminal classic, Heat. So well, you know how De Niro is. I, mean, I Niro. yield my time, and I will graciously move on to the next topic. You know what I'm going to make? Here's what we're going to make. The next Should I Go See It Redbubble merch thing yeah. is going to yep. be a t- T-shirt that says Michael Mann's Seminal Classic. <laughs> <laughs> and all- it makes me so mad that you've worked that into the, like, lexicon of this program yeah it's gonna be in helvetica it's gonna be nicely typeset and it's just gonna say michael mann's seminal classic and it's not even gonna say heat it's just gonna say that so folks when that goes live we'll let you know bill i don't give a fuck sure adam driver he's an amazing actor de niro fucking uh, pinnacle of 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 acting i think adam driver is going to be an amazing young de niro in a, a movie that i've never seen nor do i care about on to the news will you in before he too will you watch heat if we make plans to like go see Heat two opening day type of thing can i get you to watch heat somehow can i get you into heat today can i get you into heat (laughs) what do i have to do to get you into heat today (laughs) yeah okay uh you can timeshare me but the only way you're doing it is if you find a theater that is showing heat one and 35 millimeter on a big screen and i will go watch it i'll look at I'll literally look into it. I will like rent a theater if I have to. And we'll sell Michael Mann seminal classic <laughs> t-shirts. I will pay any amount. All right. We'll look into okay. it. Okay. Uh, on to the news. What is in the news, AJ? There's a potential Oscar rule change on the horizon. The current rules for eligibility for the best picture category state that a film has to be screened for at least a week in one of six qualifying U.S. metro areas. L.A., New York, San Francisco, Chicago, and Miami. Boston is not on that. According to a new report, the Academy is considering requiring Best Picture hopefuls to screen in 15 or 20 of the top 50 markets in the U.S. This would clearly be an effort affront to Netflix and other streamers who generally reject theatrical releases overall and do only the bare minimum for Oscar consideration. Bill, thoughts on this potential change? I don't mind it. I don't mind the theater requirement. Like, I am all for attempting to bring theatrical cinema back to its pre-COVID state. I think studios getting rid of the day-and-date digital releases that they did and going back to exclusive theater runs was a start, and I think they should keep going with it. I do not have much sympathy for the streamers, to be honest. Like, if you, you being Netflix, like, think you have the goods and want to be considered for Best Picture, then... Put it out there in the theaters put, that put your dick on the table. Yeah, like, and if you don't want to, boohoo! Like, don't submit for consideration. But okay, you know, if you want to run with the other thoroughbreds, you got to get out of the stable, AJ. Ooh, ooh, 
That's my take. I like that. Yeah, I, I normally, and you know me, I'm a I'm a huge fan of um, at home. I mean, we're gonna talk about uh, we watched John Wick four together and my issues with the fucking people around me. But yeah, you're right. If you think that you have a a film worthy of uh, going down in history as one of the best films ever made, put your money where your mouth is. Um, make it go wide. Get a lot of people to watch it, and then uh, earn your spot. Uh, on the ballot rather than, um, I guess, conforming to the system that you've made, if that makes sense. Yep, I agree. I think we're on the same page there. Wow. Me and you. (laughs) Align on an Oscar take right off the bat. Okay, next story. Quickest news story (laughs) ever. Uh, Yeah. AJ, I got this one's for you. A live-action reimagining of Disney Animation's 2016 hit Moana is in early development. Dwayne Johnson revealed this on Monday. Uh, it would join the list of Disney live-action remakes that includes the upcoming Little Mermaid, 2019's Aladdin and Lion King, which was debatably live-action Lion King, and 2017's Beauty and the Beast. Uh, AJ, until now, these remakes have been for movies that are 20-plus years old. What do you think about them remaking an IP that's only seven years old? Two or three things. Personally, I fucking love Moana. My child loves Moana. We're a huge Moana household, so, like, check it. Two, you got the backing of two very important people in Hollywood. You have the mind of Lin-Manuel Miranda, and you have the pockets of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So I think there's a lot of firepower there um, that helps you kind of move projects forward because um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson will be reprising his role as uh, Maui in the live-action film, which is huge. And three, when you think about, like, the worlds and uh, like the Polynesian islands, Hawaii, the Tongan people, like there is a huge, uh, beautiful universe that is in real life that you don't have to kind of make up or use CGI um, that I think uh, grounds it in a little bit of kind of reality, but using the, the lore and all that stuff to kind of fill it into. So I am super excited about the live action remake of Moana um, and I'm here for it. Wow. Wow. Just as much as we agreed on the first news story, we are going to disagree on this news story. Oh, go story. fuck yourself. Really? <laughs> uh, so first of all, I gave Moana a no when I first reviewed it. How, how of- did you give Moana a no? How? <laughs> this is one of the few reviews that I still hear about years later and haven't lived it down. But I stand by it. I stand by it. There's like two good songs in that whole thing, and I can just listen to them on the soundtrack. I don't remember anything else about that movie, and I would never watch it again. So I stand by it. The idea of remaking it is absurd to me, not because I gave it a no, but because it was computer animated. Like remaking these these 90s hand-drawn movies and bringing them into real life, I understand. But you were using the best CG you had at the time to make a world as real as you could, which they did, and they just stylized the characters themselves. Like that's it. There's I don't they they accomplished everything they wanted to accomplish. I don't think bringing it into live action adds any value, like what is to be gained. And if you're keeping The Rock, now you're just getting the same performance again, so it's not like we're going to get a reinterpretation of the character. It's just going to be the same thing, but but real life. And if the Little Mermaid trailer shows us anything, they're not exactly the best at adapting. P- point four that I forgot to bring up. Uh-huh. Disney loves money. They love money. Oh, yeah, it's a money grab. Easily it's a money grab. I get that. I get that. I, yeah. The yeah. answer to 99 out of 100 questions. Yeah. The answer to 99 out of 100 questions is money. I get that. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm not particularly uh, excited. And that's all that matters on Masters Weekend. It just, it's still it still feels too it still feels too new. But yeah, good. Thank good you. For you. Um, according to Variety, HBO is actively discussing a second Game of Thrones prequel that would take place about 100 years before House of the Dragon. The show would be about Aegon Targaryen, a.k.a. Aegon the Conqueror, the guy who took over almost all of Westeros and united everybody into the Seven Kingdoms. Uh, he was the first ruler to sit on the Iron Throne. He popular, popularized the Targaryen trend of marrying and having children with close relatives. Just incest 101. Bill, you are hot on Thrones and House of the Dragon. What do you think about another Thrones sequel? Uh, so I was skeptical about House of the Dragon, and they sold me. So I would be here for it. Like they, With House of the Dragon, they left enough runway between that show and Thrones that it's still unpredictable moment to moment. And so if they can kind of recreate that again with the, you know, with the right cast... Um, and even more action, presumably, if it's about him conquering the Seven Kingdoms, then I would definitely be there for it. What about you? No, well, here's my... I brought this up briefly last night, um, is why wouldn't they just make this one the... Pre- like, why do we have to keep on going back in time and pushing it when it's like, here's a runway of what we think would be a really good kind of premise? Um, and I don't know why they wouldn't just start with Aegon the Conqueror and how the Seven Kingdoms became one and then kind of maybe move forward in time. We're just continually going back in time and then like looking for Easter eggs or plot points or conversation that like help us be like, oh, I'll remember how that sword came about in Thrones and like that's the first time the dagger shown. Like shit like that where you're it's a lot of mental gymnastics to make the leap. Um Yeah, I mean, sure. Could they have started with Aegon and that would have been like the first couple seasons of House of Dragon and then we get into the story that we've already started as season three, four, five. Like, sure, but like we can't judge what could have been. We gotta go by what we have and and I would Or or just start the entire Game of Thrones series with Aegon one and just move in forward in time. Well, I mean that that toothpaste out. That ship sailed. Uh Craig is the only one that Craig's a huge Thrones fan, and I think the only one who's actually read any of the books here. <laughs> so I'm going to kick it over to Craig, residential book nerd, wow. to tell us what the deal is from his point of view. Yeah, my initial take was agreeing with BG, which is that going off script, so to speak, or off canon, I guess, is like always dicey, but I think they proved their ability to do that well enough with House of the Dragon. Even though it's not fully off canon, there is that book that I have not read um, called House of the Dragon, right? That's basically like a Game of Thrones like textbook, essentially. Yeah, like it's a, like an in-world encyclopedia. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're sort of off book, sort of not. Wait, 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 wait. It's like erotic fan fiction? N- uh, no one's nope. erotic except for you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, nor fan, I suppose it is fiction. Anyways, I'm certainly more interested in the story of Aegon than I am in the story of like random like great-grandparents which is basically what we're dealing with in House of the Dragon. However, House of the Dragon relies on all the world building that happened in the proper Game of Thrones series. And we're still functionally, although the characters are different, there's no material difference, I guess, other than the prevalence of dragons in the House of the Dragon world versus the Game of Thrones world, right? Like literally everything is the same except there's dragons flying around. Whereas in the Aegon thing, like, they'll have to do a shitload of world building because, like, what even was Westeros before it was Westeros? This is, like, you know, sailing to the new world type shit. So I'd be a little less, like, 
confident in their ability to create that out of whole cloth because, like I said, the House of the Dragon relies on the world building that they had already done, you know, basically completely. So, anyways, I say go for it. You know, why not? But and and it's certainly as a story that you're aware of as a Game of Thrones reader, watcher, whatever. Like they refer to Aegon the Conqueror all the fucking time. So I'd be I'd be in. I'd watch episode one for sure. That's see that's the that's the biggest risk to me is because they refer to the story so much, we already have it in our heads a certain way, and if they do it poorly, then all those references are gonna feel not as good, especially if you go on a rewatch. It's kind of like the same way I feel about the prequels, to be honest with you, the Star Wars prequels, is like some of those stories of like Anakin and Darth Vader fighting, like you knew that from like some of the books or some of that stuff and you had a vision of it in your head and then you see the movie and it's disappointing and you're like, oh, okay. And it's just kind of that forever letdown. I don't know. So there's that risk. There is that risk. Although I think, I feel like Game of Thrones, they already like, they already got their pants pulled down at prom, right? Like they already got like the ultimate yeah. embarrassment. So, so that's like that's they're past that now. So I don't think they live in fear, yeah, of 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 you know tripping over their shit like that because they already did it once and it was bad, and yeah. we punished them for it severely at the time. We meaning society. That's true. They set such a low benchmark that if even if they fuck it up, we can be like, well, at least it wasn't season seven and eight. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's been thrown stuck. AJ, we got some reviews. We got two. We're going to be talking about John Wick Chapter 4 in air today. Uh, according to imdb.com, John Wick Chapter 4, uh, John Wick uncovers a path to defeating the high table, but before he can earn his freedom, Wick must face off against a new enemy with powerful alliances across the globe and forces that turn old friends into foes. William, should I go see it? Yes. I've now seen this movie twice. Twice. Rarely rarely happens nowadays. Yep. Um, uh, we saw it together one of those yes, times. My second viewing, yes. And I, you know, I wrote this in my review and I stand by it. I think it's actually the best John Wick besides the original. I think it's better than two and three. Um, it is long. We can start there because I know you had a concern with that. It's two hours. Two hours and 49 minutes. It's a three-hour movie where he literally kills everyone in the globe. And it just, it's, it's, exha- it's exhausting towards the end. <laughs> it is a little exhausting. <laughs> um, but it's not action the whole time. There's some quiet moments in the middle. And I feel like they did a pretty good job as making those feel earned and making it feel right. I didn't feel a pacing issue. Even a second time, uh, knowing what was going to happen, I didn't particularly bump on the length. So uh, for me, it worked out pretty well. Some of the major reasons I gave it a yes, though, they introduced some new characters, including um, a bad guy played by um, Skarsgård and uh, Donnie Yen as like an old friend of John Wick's. And those actors are very, very strong. You make like an immediate connection to them. And having that proper villain, I think, is part of what separates this movie. Because if you look at John Wick's two and three, they didn't really have that. They had Santino in two, but he was kind of lame. Um, and this, I felt like the villain was actually really good. We were building up to that fight with the villain, the sort of inevitable confrontation. And they kept cutting back to his POV. And it just, instead of just mindless thugs, which movies two and three were basically all he fought, the idea of having a villain I thought was really cool and I thought it added to the movie. That's one thing I did note, to your point, was the characters in four were leaps and bounds better than the the supporting uh cast in the other movies like Halle Berry's uh character in Parabellum was uh um 
like wasn't common in the second one as like the bad guy that was chasing him for like two scenes, yeah. Yeah, um, but three also had the guy who was in um, Iron Chef, which was kind of fucking cool. I don't remember. I don't know who that is. Yeah, Mark DeCascos plays the the guy from Iron Chef. I don't watch it. A la cuisine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's him, yeah. dude. He played Zero, the assassin in three. He's a fucking dude from, yeah. from Iron Chef. So yeah. he was he was okay as an he was an interesting character, but he wasn't like a villain because in the downtime he was saying to John Wick how he was a fan and blah blah blah. Yeah. Like, like you rolling sushi rolls? Right. And he's like, Yeah, and he's like, You wanna fucking take that katana and kill everybody? And he's like, Fuck it, sure. Yeah. I used to do that. Yeah. But like uh Kane in this movie, you know, the, the antagonist. Yeah, there's like a story there and a drive of of understanding why he's doing what he's doing that is, uh, like you said, much better and more conceived and thought out than than the, the supporting characters. In the, and poor in the Donnie films. Yen, the best martial artist working today, has given yet again a blind character to play, <laughs> just just that like in Rogue One. He's a blind martial artist. Yeah, uh, that's him. He's I felt blind so again. He went from. Lightsaber and plasma rifle to fucking cane and gun. Typecast as a blind martial artist. I know. Yeah, bizarre. Thought? But yeah, the movie also from a story, not only the characters, but from a story perspective, two and three I felt got very convoluted with the markers and blood feuds and elders. And like, there's just a lot of lore in it. And this movie has some lore for sure, but it's much more straightforward. It's focused on the high table and John Wick wanting to dismantle it, which kind of all these movies have built up to. Um, and it just feels like a natural continuation of the story versus feeling a little forced. Like, two especially felt forced because they had to make a sequel. Um, this this felt more natural. What I liked about this one, too, is it leans into the campiness that I think it was yeah. bound to be in. And it's like, it has really good moments of a spaghetti western, has a really good moments of, like, a classic kung fu, like... Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce Lee movie and they just lean into that and they're like, you know what? Like we're going to, we're just going to do it. And then, you know, the, the hyper violent stylized fight choreography helps break that up. And I think it, it does a really good job of, of balancing all of those things out. Uh, speaking of hyper violent bill, this movie is extremely hyper violent. We get probably the best assassinations and deaths we've seen in any John Wick movie. Yeah, some of the best action scenes in the franchise, for sure. And we agree that this movie has the best sequence of any John Wick movies so far. Yep, for sure. I don't want to, like, spoil it, because it's like, it, it It just, you'll know it when you see it. It captivates your attention so much. There's just, yeah, it's my favorite action sequence in the whole franchise. And it speaks also to the biggest strength of this movie, is it's gorgeous. It is the best-looking movie in the franchise. Uh, I kind of think of it as, like, the skyfall of the franchise. Uh, it's, like, more emotional, more beautiful, more thoughtful than some of the other ones, um, just like Skyfall was to, to Daniel Craig's Bond movies. Um, so it's it's a work of art just to sit there and, and watch it, which is part of why I didn't mind the length, because it was just, just entrancing to look at. So I, I'm a big, big fan. Um, highly recommend... Uh, especially if you're obviously a fan of, fan of the franchise, which presumably you would be if you're going to go see this. Cons, length, cons, watching in a movie theater. Uh, Bill and I went to a pretty full pack. Yeah, tell me about your experience, AJ. This motherfucker, 16 feet from me across the aisle, was eating popcorn. The audacity. I could hear him over, like, John Wick shooting 
15,000 rounds of ammunition, <laughs> and I still heard this dickwad eating popcorn over all that. And I'm like, did you, do you not, did no one teach you how to chew with your mouth closed? You sound like a fucking horse. What are we doing here? And then the guy to Bill's left, novel coronavirus 22, this guy had a fucking upper respiratory problem that was, I'm pretty sure was patient zero. So if you're in Framingham and you come down with bronchitis, it's because the fucking dick to the left of Bill, it just spread it to everybody <laughs> in, in, in the area. Yeah, he also had like a coffee cup that he was like, like flicking or picking at once in a while. I had to like turn my head like a, like a, like 45 degrees. So he knew that I knew. Yeah. Like I think it was a, I think it was a loogie cup. I like most people would bring in like a dip cup. Disgusting. But like this guy had a loogie cup. The other issue with that theater is we saw it in a theater that is designated as a dine-in theater. And because of that, the lights don't go as dim as they normally would in a regular theater. I remember Craig and I experienced this when we saw Get Out. It just didn't get dark enough. And so, like, when there's just a little bit of light, it, like, changes the dynamic of how people feel they can act. Uh, and it's, it's a problem. It was a problem. Emboldens people. Yeah, truly. Yeah. So, yeah. But I still say see it in a theater because that's, that's my style. Uh, Bill, second movie um, is Air. Uh, Air follows, this, according to IMDb.com, Air follows the history of shoe salesman Sonny Vaccaro and how he led Nike in its pursuit of the greatest athlete in the history of basketball, Michael No B. Jordan, directed by Ben Affleck and starring Matt Damon uh, and Ben Affleck. So a little uh, Saving uh, Private Ryan. Nope, not Saving Private Ryan. A little Goodwill Hunting Ryan. Bill, should I go see it? Yes, I gave it a yes. It's in theaters now. It will be on Amazon shortly. It's an Amazon film, so to speak. Okay. And it gets a yes from me. It's a crowd pleaser. It's it's a uh, it's feel good. It's uh, it's basically a sports movie, honestly, in structure. But instead of the big game, it's like the big pitch to the Jordans is kind of what they're building up to to try to win. Okay. Uh, so yeah, you have Affleck as Phil Knight, um, you know, in charge of Nike, and then you have. Uh, Matt Damon as one of the people in charge of basketball operations within Nike. And they're not doing well. They have no money. All the big athletes are signing with Adidas uh, and with Converse. And, you know, Damon has an instinct and he sees Michael Jordan and he decides we're going to put all of our budget to try to get him because odds were he was going to sign with Adidas. And he goes through every hoop he can to try to get to Michael and his family, and then pitch them on, on coming to Nike. Uh, Michael Jordan, interestingly, as you can probably tell from the trailer, is uh, not played in the movie at all. He is only shot from behind or from the side. They never show his face. No. They do the, uh, what's the movie about Walt Disney, and he's just, they never show him smoking on screen, but they, like, show the ashtray and shit. Saving Mr. Banks? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they never show Michael Jordan. I mean, obviously, a, a casting of that. I mean, if they did, we would already know about it because they would say so-and-so introduced as Michael Jordan. Like, they'd be all over the marketing. So the fact that they don't, you can kind of already tell that they just don't cast a young Michael. So they focus instead on his family, um, played by Viola, his mother played by Viola Davis specifically. And this is where the behind-the-scenes piece comes in because the movie is clearly... Uh, affiliated with, Nike fully endorsed by Nike and the Jordans. And Michael Jordan himself told director Ben Affleck, you have to get Viola Davis to play my mother. And he did. And so there is definitely that endorsed element, unbiased element of it. 
from the documentary perspective. Um, like all these agents are unbelievably, incredibly good-hearted <laughs> people that work over at Nike. Uh, and it's just, it's a little biased. But it's still, I mean, it's kind of, it has a similar style or vibe to like Ford versus Ferrari. It's like, you know, dad, a classic dad movie, so to speak. And it's good. The performances are good. Matt Damon is actually really good. Affleck's the only one who's not great. Um, he kind of sticks out. It felt a little forced for his casting. And I got to assume that in order to direct it, the studio probably required him to be in it, which happens a lot when actors go to direct. In order to try to get people in the seats, um, the studios will force them to also act in it if they want that project. Sure, but we've talked I about get the this. feeling that's... Yeah, Bradley Cooper, it happened to him as well. I get the feeling that that's what's happening here. Um, because he's not that great in that role. It's just a little, it's a little weird. Oh, I meant that we've talked about, like, he's not a good actor. Period. Oh, well, that too. You can throw that in there. <laughs> but it's good. It's wholesome. You know who's a real standout in it is Chris Messina. He plays a hard-nosed agent like he always does. He's always like a hard-scrabble detective or a lawyer or an agent. Um, and he's Michael Jordan's agent, and he is phenomenal. Um, it made me want to rewatch his scene with Rosamund Pike in I Care A Lot. Um, instantly, like that type of negotiation scene. I just love Christmas Cena. He's so good in it. The movie is definitely like hardcore 80s, like hardcore 80s soundtrack. The opening credits is like a montage to get you into the 1984 like mood. And they do a pretty good job setting all that up. I think Craig would probably eye roll a lot at the soundtrack. It's likely. as like just forcing these 80s hits down your throat. It's very likely. Jay Moore's in this? I thought Jay Moore, Jay Moore hasn't been in anything in, like, years. He's in there, yeah. He works for Adidas. He's in that pitch meeting. Wow. His uh, head is shaped like a thumb. <laughs> that's, Who, that's Jay Moore? Bad. Yeah. Yeah, he's got kind of a thumbish face. The last thing I'll say, though, the, the, the only real, like, the biggest knock on this movie, and you got to kind of go with it when you're watching it, where it's going to upset you the whole time, is it feels the script is unbelievably apocryphal. Like, there's no chance... Any of these, any of this dialogue took place in real life anywhere like this. Like they are speaking with the hindsight that we have now, trying to make it feel like it's happening in the time, but there's just, it's just, it's not how people talk. There's no shot that some of these scenes happen the way they do or did. Like the way they talk about Michael Jordan, he will be the greatest player of all time, or this will change the shoe industry forever. Like the way they like throw this dialogue out there, it's just like, okay, all right, we get it. Um, so you gotta kind of know that going in and just kind of go for the ride. It's just, the writing's a little, a little weak. Uh, but Damon sells it, man. Damon sells the hell out of it. So, um, so I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I mean, I'm a basketball junkie. So like that kind of, I'm kind of in the, in the bag for it to begin with. But I think if you like dramas, true life dramas, there's some comedy in there. Again, it's kind of feels like a sports movie almost. I think a lot of people will enjoy it. Love it. Uh, Bill, uh, for our next segment, Netflix and Bill, what are you watching and what will you soon be watching? I watched uh, past tense, Waco, American Apocalypse, a Netflix three-episode docuseries about the tragedy in Waco, Texas, the standoff with the Branch Davidians from the 90s. This is a story that I've always found fascinating. I wrote a paper about it when I was in school and uh, I've seen every documentary there is to see on it. And I saw the dramatization uh, miniseries on Paramount. Was it? Okay. That's where I, I feel like I was like, didn't we watch, didn't we watch it? Yeah. What, what was that? That was Ooh. a, that was a dramatization. This is a, this is a documentary. 
or docu-series. So three episodes, they interview people that were there. Um, I thought it was actually really good. They have never before seen footage, um, and they don't focus too much. Some of these documentaries about cults, they focus like entire episodes about what it was like in the, in the cult and blah, 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 blah. This is just about the standoff, and that is the more interesting part to me. And so I thought they did a really nice job. Uh, the only thing that was a little weird about it is they did, they clearly recreated the compound using like Unreal Engine 5 and like flew around. And that was cool to give you a sense of the compound and the, and the geography. I thought that was a really smart way to do it. But then during the shootouts, they cut real footage to like fake aerial infrared camera that clearly didn't exist at the time. But they tried to add film grain and make it look real. And like it could trick people into thinking that's real footage of the shootout. When like my to my eye, I know it's not. So like that felt a little sneaky. But besides that, I thought the whole thing was really really interesting. And it's only three episodes; they're about an hour each, um, a little less than an hour maybe. So I recommend it if that is a story that is of interest to you. Uh, I just had like a like a full panic attack because I thought reality wasn't real. There's also another the the Waco mini series that we talked about. You just talked about that was in 2018. There's a sequel coming out next week of five part. Yes, I did hear about that. Sequel to that show that comes out. Yeah, oh my God. I was like, what the fuck am I reading? Okay. No, that should, that's supposed to be a follow-up that includes some of the same cast, like Michael Shannon, I think, is in it again. And I think it, it kind of follows the aftermath of Waco as well as Oklahoma City because Timothy McVeigh visited Waco during that and it... What happened there and what happened at Ruby Ridge is part of what radicalized Tim, Tim McVeigh before he blew up Oklahoma City. So uh, so I think there's some follow-up there. So I will plan on watching that as well. Bill did not know you were such a Waco guy. Big Waco guy. Big Waco guy. Big time. So yeah, so I watched that and I am watching, I think we all are watching, Succession Season 4. Oh, hell yeah, we are, baby. Bill, ha- I think Bill has some... Uh, I think he's a little down on the last episode. Me? I never said that. What are we? What are we talking about? What are we talking? I love Succession, best show on TV. All right, let's get your let's get your Succession takes. Go. Oh, I think this season is great. I don't have I don't have any particular takes. I'm watching it unfold. I'm enjoying the journey. This is great. Uh, all right, good, good to know. Level now we're level set. Why? Are there other takes out there? I I I read something that kind of colored my view of Succession in a little bit of a way, which is like. there was an article somewhere and I forget where that basically just said that like nothing ever happens in this show. Like it's like the kids try to rise up and Logan smacks them down and the kids try to rise up and the Logan smacks them down. It's like, is there like, it's just been like four seasons now of like attempted coup, Logan wins, attempted coup, Logan wins. And it's like, and that kind of like put a little thought in my mind of like, is this going to, actually be different i'm enjoying the ride don't get me wrong the the show itself like the actual the writing the characters everything about it is super enjoyable to to me but there's like this little thing in the back of my head right now that's wondering whether there will be actually a different outcome at any point at any anywhere along the entire run of this show which we now know is going to end at this season i share with you that tweet that was like succession is a show about sealing the deal that no one can ever seal a deal and i was like oh. it's about the uh, no deals have been sealed jerry a deal was unsealed last sunday yeah we unsealed it but but folks <laughs> folks it's about the journey really and then also not only that this is the final season so the stakes are higher i feel like the stuff that's happening now will be 
more conclusive. So I, I so I'm a little more juiced for it versus the rise and fall of two and three. Isn't this a turn? We thought Bill was going to neg the show, and then yeah, it turns I'm, out, yeah, what a twist! You're meant to come down here and defend me against these animals, and the only one I have on my side is the blood sucking lawyer. <laughs> um. All right. What What do you get tickets for? Super Mario Brothers this afternoon. As soon as this taping ends, um, Renfield. I mentioned before. I have a ticket for that. I also have a ticket for Mafia Mama with your girl Tony Collette. Is that like a is that like a reimagining of Mamma Mia but with mobsters? <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> she, um, you know, she is a suburban house mom or whatever, and then she, her father, grandfather, uncle, somebody dies, and they say you have to go to Italy for the funeral, and then she finds out at the at that funeral that she has been left in charge of this Italian crime family she didn't know she had, and it's a fish out of water comedy. That's literally I've, fucking Mamma Mia. She goes to Greece to figure out who her fucking dad is. She goes to Italy to say to bury a loved one and becomes a head of a of a crime family. I don't know that those are exactly the same age. <laughs> Becoming the head of a crime family. Mamma Mia. Anyway, Tony Collette's in it. Monica Bellucci's in it. it looks good. It looks uh, entertaining. Ooh. I'm gonna check it out. Why not? Fuego. Well, let me know if there's any musical numbers. All right, well, Gabagool, have fun. I heard Mario's trash. Chris Pratt is the fact that he's Mario is a you don't know that yet. You haven't seen it against humanity. <laughs> I mean, I've heard him talk in the trailers as Mario, and I'm pretty sure I know what I'm getting myself into. And then, and then Charlie Day plays Luigi. Fantastic. Why wouldn't Charlie Day play Mario and like you know too much fun? You know who? You know who would have been a great Luigi. Who? The, the Ross from Friends. David David Schwimmer? Melman the Giraffe. David Schwimmer would be an amazing Luigi. All like tall and sad and mopey. But you don't see him. <laughs> Being tall doesn't matter. And what? Why not? I feel like it adds to the persona. He knows Luigi's always a tall one. Mario's a short one. I feel like he can channel that tallness. Okay. They're both small enough to fit inside a pipe, though. <laughs> Unless there's a piranha plant in it. <laughs> All right, take us away. Thank you for listening to the Should I Go See It podcast. Please tell your friends to subscribe and follow on Instagram at Should I Go See It. New shirts coming soon. 